Hi, I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. What a great idea it would be if both of them could heal, could come to understand as well the other through the vehicle of poetry. Dealing with the death of his parents, 12-year-old Rufus is sent to live with his grandfather, Horatio Hennessy, who swiftly renames him Blue, an identity he is unsure of to begin with, but soon comes to relish. A Man of Understanding is the new novel from Diana Janney, known for The Infinite Wisdom of Harriet Rose and The Choice. In her stunning new release, we follow the story of Blue and Horatio as the two bond over shared grief and a love of philosophy. And when Blue discovers his grandfather is a poet, their bond is cemented. These two themes are such strong parts of the narrative that poems and philosophical musings are even weaved into the prose. It's done so beautifully and effortlessly, although I'm sure it wasn't effortless. I am delighted to say that Diana Janney is my guest today. Chapter 1. Healing Through Poetry Blue's new home is a finca in Mallorca, an authentically Mallorcan stone farmhouse. There, his grandfather is tasked with rebuilding his shattered soul. But despite the bond they build and their many shared fascinations, we see misunderstandings unfurl too, as secrets are uncovered and the pair wrestle with elements of their new lives. I loved the way the poetry and philosophy emerges throughout this novel, so I asked Diana about the genesis of the idea – What was it that lit a candle inside her that made her want to tell this story in this way? I'd written two books before, two novels before A Man of Understanding, and I thought that this book was a good follow-on from my previous novel, which was The Infinite Wisdom of Harriet Rose. And in that book, uh, the eponymous Harriet Rose uh, is a teenager who's also been bereaved like Blue in A Man of Understanding, my present novel. And she decides to write meditations and emulation of her hero, the Roman emperor and philosopher Marcus Aurelius. So a lot of those those meditations of Harriet Rose, which are published and become massively successful in the novel, a lot of those are in poetry form. And it was extremely successful. The poetry, you know, people really took to those poems. I was having People contact me and say that they'd written the words of some of them on their guitars and this kind of thing. It was really popular. So I thought, what a great idea it would be if I could carry on and write something with a male central character. Actually, it it evolved into the two, the the blue, uh, the the 12-year-old boy who's recently been orphaned when his parents tragically died in a car crash in England in Wiltshire, and his grandfather that he's never met who's living as you know, in Mallorca, in the Finca, he's restored himself, and that's where his new life is going to be. What a great idea it would be if you, if through poetry, this grieving process, and both of them, both grandfather and grandson are grieving in different ways, but if both of them could heal, could come to understand as well the other through the vehicle of poetry. But they spend the early part of this story, don't they, having a very difficult relationship, which which sort of only really gets better 
with this chance discovery of this of this collection of poetry, some of which are dotted throughout the book. So let's talk about that. But I'd love to talk about you as a poet as well. But that's really the, how they come together, isn't it? The, when Blue discovers this collection. Yeah, they're having difficulty because they're both, they're very different characters, of course. Uh, Horatio Hennessy is very extrovert and outgoing, and his grandson is quite reverse, especially at this particular time of grieving over losing his parents and never, barely ever having left England. So they're very different characters. Horatio is widowed, adored his wife, who died young and, and has always lived alone subsequently. So suddenly he's got a 12-year-old boy in, in this finger in Mallorca. And suddenly Blue has to leave the, the only home that he's known. So it's it's tricky at first. And, and, and Blue is rather in awe of this guy, Horatio, who seems to know about everything. It loves Aristotle and Kant and Hume and has a strong appreciation of the arts. And he's very much in awe of him. So he's he's finding it difficult to, to come out of himself, which is what he needs. And Horatio similarly, but for different reasons that are explored and, and divulged as the, as the novel goes on, he's, he's also got problems in relating to, to his grandson, never having met him before. And as you say, Horatio takes Blue to Morocco to taste his first tagine because Taste is so important to Horatio as the, as, as the beginning, the initiation of that aesthetic journey into the arts. So he takes him to Morocco to, to savour his first tagine. And while they're staying there, Blue finds in, in the apartment that belongs to Horatio a book called Verses of a Solitary Fellow, which is a, a published book that was published many years before, before this. And just reading the first few about his wartime experiences. He didn't even know he'd had, he'd been a soldier. He, he learns not just a bit more about what sort of professions his grandfather's had, but he learns about his deep emotions in the way that Horatio expresses them in those first three war poems. And so he immediately, he gets into the emotion of his grandfather. And although he doesn't initially tell Horatio that he's read them, he smuggles the book back to, to Mallorca so that uh, he can dip into it whenever he wants to, which is very often. But once Horatio realises he has this book and he's interested in poetry, it's essentially Blue's idea, really, then to find out more about poetry. And before long, they're writing their first poem, creating it together, uh, line by line. And, and by doing so... So many questions Blue was able to ask his, his grandfather that he hadn't dared ask, but in the form of a poem, he dares to ask those questions and he finds some, some very revelatory answers and secrets become disclosed. So, it, you know, it becomes ex extremely important to the two of them as a way of healing. I, I loved that, Diana, and I thought it was really cleverly done because... I love the way you dotted some of the poems through the book, not just the poems in the book that they find in Morocco, but also new things that they're working on together. So it, it got me thinking, were you a poet before you were a novelist or have you come at this quite late? I'm just fascinated because it is to me both the most economical art form, but also one of the hardest to get right because every syllable, every Dot, everything is so scrutinized. So did you start <laughs> off writing poetry? 
I started writing poetry as a child. I mean, I, I was mad about poetry when I was at school and my first published poems were in school magazines. And then at that time I was, I was studying for, for my A-levels. Well, not at that time, the first poems came before that, but later when I was studying for my A-levels in English, Latin and, and French and reading poetry in my studying of, 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 for my A-levels, I particularly loved Catullus. I, I, I chose a, a Catullus book as my school prize. And so it fascinated me from then. And that led on really to later thinking why not combine poetry in the novel, which I hadn't seen it done before. I mean, and, and I think it's, it's a great way of getting across what you want to say in the poem, because the reader gets to understand already what those characters are about. They've seen the, the, the highs and lows, the joys and sorrows of the characters, and they, they know something about the emotions of those individuals who have written the poem. So I had to write them as if they were coming from Horatio and, and Blue. And Blue's poetry obviously develops as the book goes on. So it came from there, really. Chapter two, the heart of a musician. You may remember in Series 7, Episode 10, I spoke to the author Lydia Sangren, whose novel Collected Works reads as much like a piece of music as it does prose. And it happened that she was, in fact, a musician as well as a writer. And this sense of musicality came screaming through in a manner of understanding as well. Diana writes for all the senses, but thanks to the poems or perhaps the meter that she writes in, I could even hear this book in my head. So I wanted to know the same. Is Diana also a musician? Well, I mean, I, I find that a, a, a very interesting question, a very astute, because I've never heard anyone mention that before, and I hadn't considered it myself either. And, and, and it is true that, that I am musical. I, I, I play the violin, but I hadn't thought and considered that that, that kind of rhythm came across in, in, in my, my novels. It probably does influence my, um, certainly does influence my, my poetry writing. I also write lyrics for songs. So it is a very important art form to me, music, yes. Often when a writer is also a musician or musical in some way, there is a real sense that they are, I have this thing in my mind, which is writers, as a writer, you're either an architect or a gardener. And if you're a gardener, you're quite happy to to go off and let things grow and then think, actually, that's not working. I'm going to put it in a different direction. Whereas if you're an architect, everything has to be in, in the right place. And as much as I would like to be an architect in terms of writing, I, so I, I would know where, exactly where everything was going before I started writing. I'm not. I just start. Oh, no, I'm not either. No, right. no. I mean, I, I think I wouldn't enjoy the experience as much if it were planned. And I, you know, my books are very character driven and I have to, I have to really feel a strong connection with my characters. If I don't feel that strong connection, then, then I, I abandon them and, and move on to something else. Not to say that I won't go back to them later because the author evolves as much as the characters need to and, and yeah. it may not be the right time. But I do have time with the characters and, and Carrying on from what you said about musicality, um, my next novel that I'm writing on at the moment is about a musician. And, and so music plays a, a, an even bigger role in my next novel, but it, also the other forms of, of art as well. 
I know you, you've just said you've moved on to another book, but I wondered, given how strong your connection with Blue and Horatio, particularly Blue, is as a writer, often, you know, we, we live with these characters in our minds for years before it ever sees the light of day. And, and I wondered whether you missed him in some way, because I, there are characters that I've created that I do miss and often and, and really enjoy reconnecting with. But yes. did, did Blue leave a bit of a hole in your life once you'd finished this book? Blue and Horatio, I have to say, because because although you're saying about the characters and whether you plan like an architect, and as I said, I, I don't plan, but I do write having to feel that there are ideas and themes that I need to get across. So I had those ideas and Blue uh, was, was an ideal vehicle. And, and the longer I went into the book, uh, the more attached I became to Blue and Horatio's characters and indeed the others, Lulu, Horatio's sister and uh, Maria, the housekeeper and all of Horatio's friends and Hannah, they all became, you know, it became a a world in the mountains of Mallorca and this wonderful thinker that I would love to be in. I mean, I go a lot to Mallorca, Mallorca itself inspired that part of the book. Mm. But I do miss them. I do sometimes think I wonder what Horatio Blue would have to say about this particular situation, this particular thought that I'm having. When I read and or watch things, it's often very difficult for me to separate the forensic writer part of my brain with the I just want to be entertained part of me. And, and the two can exist separately, but they often overlap. There was a moment in this book where I became so invested in blue that I thought I, I've fallen into a into the writer's trap here because now and, I, and I'll tell you which bit of the book I'm, I'm going to in a second. But now this is the bit where I am now massively invested in blue's emotional journey and where he's going, and it starts off as if nothing is going to happen but the tennis match, and there is a letter that is delivered and the letter gets snatched away from him and read, read out loud. And I felt, I felt so bad for blue at that yes. point because he's yes. thinking the letter is one thing and it turns out to be something else. But the fact that <laughs> someone opens it, I think it's Sebastian grabs it, opens mm. the letter, starts to read it, starts to have a go at him for being called blue. And yes. it's just, it's heartbreaking to watch <laughs> what happens in that moment. And that was that for me, that was the point at which I am, hugely invested in this in this oh, young man's success. It's, always in, it's interesting to know which which parts that that people get emotionally invested by i've had such wonderful responses from people that say that you know they've been moved several times during the book to tears and the, it, it is it is an, an emotional book and i, I mean i was thrilled to be the runner-up in the people's book prize as well the 2023 for the, the frederick forsyth being a patron, it, you know, it meant a great deal. Huge. And, yeah. I, and I have been very touched and moved by the responses and how much people have liked the novel and and been moved by the poetry people that already like poetry and those that, that have got to like it through reading my, my book. Chapter three, the drum kit. At the very start of this novel, we find out how Blue's parents die in a car crash whilst out shopping for him they're buying him a present a drum kit 
I find this such an interesting inclusion, really leaning into Diana's musical side. Blue does not want to play the drum kit, which is totally understandable, and only plays it once in a fit of anger or frustration. But I'm convinced his parents would have loved for him to play it, like a constant reminder of them. But instead, it just sits there as this brooding object, a real reminder of how powerful objects can be as characters within a story. Yes, yes. You're thinking to t- that it might have tied in with my mm. being a violin player, my being interested in music, if he'd actually developed that music playing, but which he may well do in the future. Well at that yeah. stage. He, he just wanted to leave everything behind. He wanted to leave his home that meant so much to be the only home he'd ever had behind. And he, he, he was afraid of, of touching on those aspects of his life that, that produced the raw emotion of loss and grief. And, I, and it was one, you know, one of the main themes in, in the book is how to overcome loss in different ways that you may not have thought of. And, yeah. you know, it is at times of grief and loss that people do turn to what really matters in life, don't they? I mean, we all do that. You lose somebody, I lost my father, and, you know, it, it meant a great deal. It had a huge impact on me and on my writing, and possibly why I do t- write a lot about characters who have lost lost a parent. And, and it's important to, to reflect this. And, and a lot of people then create poetry at that time of loss. And that's a way of healing and look to wise words, wise individuals like Aristotle was a, was a great role model for Blue. I mean, partly because they, they've both been orphaned at the yeah. similar age. I loved that. And, and, and Aristotle had been brought, brought up, his guardian was his uncle, Proximus. Who, who, like Blue and Horatio, taught Aristotle about about poetry and some philosophy until he went on to, to uh, Plato's Academy. There is a lot to admire about this, but there is one thing in particular that I wanted to dwell on because I found it so profound and so moving. And it occurs several times throughout it, but Horatio has this, he refers to it as aftertaste. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because that beat that occurs several times throughout the book, each time it came up, and I don't know why this is, but I would like to share it with you anyway. It made me think of probably my growing up, my most favourite bit of poetry was The Wind Hover by Gerard Manley Hopkins. And every time you mentioned aftertaste, I found myself in my head saying, I caught this morning, morning's mini and kingdom of daylight's dauphin. And I don't know why, (laughs) <laughs> because I haven't thought of that poem in yes. a long time. Yes. But there's something about the aftertaste, as Horatio calls it, about something that is profound or about with which you have some form of connection. That Where where did that come from? Because I thought that was beautiful. I just, it, it's just something I, I've created my, for myself. I, I thought it was, it followed on from my description of the importance of the the, the journey of taste picking up the different flavours in food that is the initiation of that aesthetic journey. And, and David Hume, the 18th century philosopher, also thought that that a good palate was, was imperative to a perception of uh, ability to perceive beauty. And so from that, you get the analogy with that aftertaste that you're left with, with food. And 
it often is more compelling than the actual experience of eating. It needs something. I mean, you can remember and you're drooling over something you've eaten and you're probably enjoying it in your imagination subsequently more than you did at the time. And isn't it similar with, with all the arts? You know, you, you read a book, you're enjoying it, you put it down, but you keep going back to thoughts about it and you feel, you know, it's left of a strong, it can be a positive, it can, obviously an aftertaste can be a negative one mm. as well. But it leaves something that like, there's an indefinable something that's drawing you back to to, the, to a favorite poem. It leaves something there. And I considered when I was writing that that maybe life is similar to that because with a book you've got your final page with a piece of music as the final note, and then and then the piece is over. The final brush stroke on a on a great painting. And our life is finite too. Mm. And what you're getting is some something something whether it's a spiritual thing or soul-related in some sense, you are, you are feeling that once something is ended. And perhaps it's like life. You know, Horatio writes in a poem, once begun, there cannot be an ending. Once ended, then comes true reality. And I think that's important to a description of the aftertaste. It applies to all those art forms that we so love. And it and possibly it applies to life too. It's what lingers subsequently at the end that creates a new beginning. I was fascinated by Horatio's journey because he starts off as this self-appointed mentor, educator, parental figure. And you get the sense, and you learn very quickly that this is true, <laughs> he also needs time to heal. Yes, yes. And he starts off almost rejecting his own need to heal and projecting what he thinks Blue needs onto him without really understanding what it is that Blue needs. And, and through that process comes to realise that actually he himself needs to heal. And I love the fact that you made him that well-rounded because you're absolutely right, he does. He's in real trouble and he does need time to heal. But it's almost as if he only learns that through this connection that he has with Blue over this book of poems and their discussions of philosophy. So I think he has just as much of an arc in this as Blue, doesn't he? He really does need Blue to heal. He does. He, he does need it. And whether he's instilling philosophy onto his grandson rather than his grandson having, having chosen to go there himself, I think Horatio's answer to that would be that it's not just a personal preference. Is it or is it a personal preference for Blue? And if it isn't a personal preference, then Horatio's answer would be um, along the lines of, of one of the other philosophers that Horatio so admires, Immanuel Kant, the 18th century German philosopher, because he would think, well, the judgment of taste has to be valid intersubjectively. And there's something objective to it as an element, and it's something intrinsic about the judgment of taste, that everyone ought to feel the way you feel, that necessity is there. And so Horatio's answer would be, if you, if you, if you think in your personal preference that you're not sure about it, look again, because if you're not responding to something as great as Aristotle, as a thing of beauty, joy forever, then there's something that you're missing because everyone ought to feel that way about it. So look again. Yeah, it's it's extremely powerful, it really is. You mentioned, Diana, that you're working on something else. What can you tell us about that? 
not a not a great deal at the moment because I don't want to give too much away about it. But it it, it is musical based, and you, and I hope that you might read it and and see in which way it's, it has developed. Um, I'm I'm about halfway through it at the moment, but it's got a, it's got a very strong unusual um, first person related character and a relationship with this musician that that takes her is a female this time through the various art forms and it also brings in the themes of of, of grieving as well and um, and there is some poetry again but it's all very different kinds it's very there's, there's different kind of philosophy there's different kinds of poetry there's very different sort of relationship between a man and a woman so I tell you that much <laughs> That's great. I, I would love to read it. Well, let's leave it there because I think this book should be on everybody's shelves. It's clearly done very well. Congratulations on it and the People's Prize and everything that happens to you in the future. A Man of Understanding is out now. Diana Janney, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me too. I've enjoyed it very much. A massive thank you then to Diana Janney for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Many of the reviews for this book say they shed a tear at the ending because of the characters and the beauty of the writing. It is possible to weave poetry and philosophy into a novel without it becoming academic or hard to follow. And this is the perfect example. If you've abandoned a novel because you've discovered the characters aren't right or you're struggling to connect with them, don't throw out the idea just yet. Authors evolve as much as characters do and it may simply not be the right time for you to write that book. And finally, bring all parts of yourself to your writing, whether that's the innate sense of musicality in you or something else that defines you in some way. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter, Facebook and TikTok as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. You can check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. Titled On the Couch, these events are not recorded, are not repeated, and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 